Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The UK had a ska punk revival just after the US did in the late 90s and early 2000s with amazing groups like Capdown, Lightyear, and King Prawn. When one of the lesser-known groups from the scene called Grimace broke up, a few of the members formed a new band called Sonic Boom 6 in 2002. Though Sonic Boom 6 started a little later than most of the other UK ska punk bands, they were one of the most original blending elements of grime, dubstep, and hip-hop with ska-punk. They also outlived many of their peers. In 2012, their song Virus did quite well, though not quite as well as their label had hoped. Today we discuss Sonic Boom 6's long and interesting career with singer Layla Kay and bassist Barney Boom. So I love the UK ska-punk scene. And something that I didn't realize until we recorded this, but I, I had always thought that Link 80 played with Sonic Boom 6, but it was actually Dessa. Oh, wow. Okay. Dessa was the only, one, the only one of my bands that ever played with Sonic Boom 6. And fun fact, this entire episode, Layla doesn't know that she knows me <laughs> for the entire interview. Until the end. Until the very end. So wait for that part. It's really funny. You know that Sonic Boom 6 did a tour in the U.S. and they asked Narboots if we could play <laughs> one of the shows and we didn't do it. Why? I didn't know that. I can't remember. Oh, man. I totally, I wish that we did do that. You were probably busy writing your book. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta write a ska book. I wanted to ask first about, so your first album, you called it The uh, Rough Guide to Genre Terrorism. I want to specifically ask you about the idea of calling it Genre Terrorism. Because I, I like I like that term, and I think uh, there's I th I'm suspecting that some of the philosophy behind the band and the styles you play went into that title. You, you know what it was? It was uh, specifically the title came um, from uh, the, the the band sort of came from a university thing that we were doing. Well, I was doing, and the drummer Neil was doing a, a music and recording course at university. Uh, in Salford, which is in Greater Manchester, and um, we 
I did a dissertation on the specials and their influence on black and white music that have come together. So bands like The Streets, The Prodigy and Blur specifically, which is funny because it, it really does tie into a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff that this conversation could bounce off on because they're not ska bands, but The Specials was a ska band. But for me, they were the bands what I was into, The Prodigy, Blur and The Streets. And there was a, there was a few more and all The Specials were all profoundly important to them bands. And um, I just said about, because I fancy myself as a bit of a writer, I, 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 I said that um, the prodigies adept genre terrorism. And I wrote that in the dissertation. And um, I remember the tutor read it. And then he said to me, like, he said, I love that term and uh, what it, the visions it conjures up. So I went, oh, I'll have that in my back pocket. It was, the same, it was the same thing with Sonic Boom 6. Uh, I wrote that on a flyer about another band and somebody said, that's an amazing band name. So it, that, 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 came, that came from there. But um, yeah, I mean, when we started the band, it was, it was a time, again, this, this, this uh, ties very much into, into what we're talking about, but it was a time where um, the ska punk scene, the DIY punk scene and the, and, and the ska punk scene that sprung up around these bands in the UK like King Prawn and Cap Down and Sponge, uh, it had gone gone for a few years, and there was a lot of um, there was a lot of uh, like there was a touring circuit, and there was bands supporting each other, and it was thriving, and people were just hiring like the local youth club and putting bands on. So we wanted to be we'd been around that scene in in a band before Sonic Boom Six, but then we were when we like we seen how. Um, bands on the scene like um, Adequate Seven and Howard's Alias and Jesse James, they were bands that were like coming up and they suddenly, everyone was talking about them because they put a different twist on, on ska punk. So even people would go, oh, well, Adequate Seven isn't a ska punk band, but they were playing with the ska punk, other, ba- other ska punk bands and they were playing like a funk music, punk music. And then Jesse James did soul music, but ska punk music. No ska, <laughs> but punk and soul playing with ska punk bands. So we was, I was just into hip hop and drum and bass and ragga from the real commercial stuff to, to the underground stuff that we were listening to at clubs. And it was like, that's all I was into at uni. We were going all them nights. And it was like, well, let us all do uh, reggae, drum and bass, uh, um, and a bit of ska. And let's uh, mix it all up with hardcore punk rock. Uh, and then that's why we, you know, we called it genre terrorism. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? If you don't listen to that music, we probably don't sound... Uh, it's probably no more genre terrorism than in any other band. But we were adding, doing things like bits of Bangra and going more out there into, like, getting more influenced by... A lot of bands were influenced by urban music, but we were, like, literally doing sort of, like, grime bass lines and doing sort of grime rapping flows and then going into a hardcore punk bit. So that was kind of... That was genre terrorism, but um, ska was certainly one of them genres, but it was only as important as grime and it was only important as, you know, anything else in that mix. So let's let's back up a little bit and talk about the formation of, of Grimace, the band before uh, Sonic Boom 6, right? Yeah. 
What was what was Manchester like at that time as far as like a ska punk scene? Was there one? Um, wow, like it was. So we would have started, Layla. What was it, nineteen ninety seven? Yeah, yeah, nineteen ninety seven. It was a it was a weird time in Manchester because if you were into alternative music, so you know, and that included ska, punk, rock, metal there was a very definite scene Mm -hmm. and it just sort of amalgamated into one scene that basically wasn't Oasis because at (laughs) that time in Manchester, honestly, like we would play gigs and every single band, and there's nothing wrong with it, but every single 16-year-old lad had a Liam Gallagher haircut, he had a Parker on, his hands behind his back, a tambourine on stage and I I remember thinking, so what, we were like 17, 18, and I remember just thinking, do you know what? It actually made me hate Oasis, and I love Oasis now. Like, I, you know, because I'm, 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 I'm grown up and I'm adult. I, I'm an adult, and I can look at things objectively now. Yeah. But, at, but at the time, it was just like, to me anyway, it felt like anyone that was in a band was only in a band because they wanted to be famous. And for us, it was it it was it, it wasn't it wasn't about that. It was about sort of having this camaraderie and having this common interest that like I would never argue with someone because they liked Rage Against the Machine and I liked Pantera. It we were the same tribe. Do you know, do you know, or or if you liked No Doubt and I like say Ferris, you wouldn't you wouldn't argue, but the co- common enemy was was uh, Oasis fans. For me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think the funny thing is that speak the um the, that's the, the reason for that is kind of twofold. One is that Manchester scene was so dominated by that in terms of a live gig scene. Whereas um it it we when we started we were playing very much like mixed band nights because there wasn't really happening anything in terms of ska punk and punk music in Manchester that we could immediately jump into. That very there was in other places, there was in Brighton. At Leeds there was great DIY gigs and around the Yorkshire scene. But in Manchester, there was a few of us. There was us and another couple of bands. And then we, it, it, by maybe 2000, 2001, and certainly, yeah, when Sonic Boom 6 started going, then the Manchester scene, we had, you know, scar punk gigs with, you know, hundreds of people there or, you know, over 100 people or 200 people, 300 people. Um, but, yeah, it, it, when we started in Grimace, it, it, that really wasn't there. We had to, like, seek out, you know, bands like Sponge. We had to put bands like Lightyear on. Um, and shooting goon and and those bands, um, you know, it wasn't it, it wasn't as strong in Manchester as it as it was in Leeds and it was in Brighton, Southampton and 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 London at all. Yeah. No, but that that's what whenever a band always says to me, or you know, like how do we play gigs? And I'm like, form a community, like like start a community because that's the biggest. Like camaraderie, and you know, like we we brought we brought over as if like they're from another country, but you know, we got Lightyear <clears throat> to play event a venue in Manchester. We got Adequate Seven to come over and and play, you know, as part of their tour. 
so that Manchester wasn't missed out. I'm, you know, I'm sure there were other promoters that would have booked them, but it was through that then we were invited to play, you know, to tour with that, to tour with bands like that. And I really think it's so important because if there are other bands that you identify with, like you're stronger at the strength in numbers and it just makes it, it just makes it so much better than just trying to be this one band that feel like you're unique and that you're, you're suddenly going to get asked to do gigs and be on tours because you're not. Definitely. Um, so we need to take a little sidestep here. Light years come up a few times on the podcast. You needed to give us your favorite light year story. <laughs> oh God! I can. <laughs> I listen. I, I have got the light year story. So right. um, we've, we've seen him last week. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're really good friends. Uh, so you know, I'm this young woman from Manchester. Uh, I'd like. I'd like to say I'm pretty streetwise. I'd seen a lot. You know, I grew up with. Uh, I, I'd seen quite a lot at a young age. And we uh, we headlined a gig at the Underworld in Camden. It was great, sold out years ago. And uh, I I used to play a melodica. I used to I used to have this T-shirt that I loved. It was a Super Vixens T-shirt. It was amazing. It was white. It was really tight, and it fit really well. And uh, we were I think it was like towards the end of the set. And Chaz from Lightyear. Kate just bounced onto the stage at the Underworld wearing my T-shirt. So instantly my head's like, oh, he's going to stretch my T-shirt. He's like six foot tall. He's a man. He's like my favorite T-shirt. And then, and I I thought that was the end of the world. And then um, Chaz proceeded to take my melodica. First of all, though, he was was wearing nothing else. That needs to be said. He's literally... Literally just, literally just wearing the T-shirt. I, I'd actually erase that from my mind. Yeah, he was completely <laughs> naked. And my, I like you can play your melodica in two ways. You can have the pipe on it, or you can just have the thing that goes on the end. I like the pipe on it. And he then decided to lie on his back, completely spread eagled, <laughs> and stick the tube oh, no. of my melodica. Up his <laughs> like we had like 15 16 year old kids at the game oh yeah and my do you, honestly i've struggled to play melodica since <laughs> you probably you probably won't won't see me a won't see a photo of me with a melodica since it was brutal the worst bit though he was clearly like he, he did it, and then he was like, what am I going to do? So we're all just looking at him, and he, so he's, he's just, he sort of starts running around, on, like, hugging us and laughing. So I'm like, get get off me. So he's humping me. So I said, get off. So then he, he fell up. So then he fell on the floor, and then he was – he had it – he had he was playing it with his fingers, and then you could tell he was staring at me, and he wouldn't break eye contact. But he had like just this gormless look on his face, and I was like, "Oh my god, he's trying to fart a note." He was definitely <laughs> pushing, and he was trying to fart a note out, and he he, he couldn't. But that, but yeah, that's what I knew with that face, man. So that's yeah, that that that's a light year story. You know what? That's a very um, 
that's a un- that's very unique to Sonic Boom Six. That Lightyear story. It's not just we weren't just observing. It was pa- it's part of our history and part of the history of reggae. When you think. About it. <laughs> <laughs> In the Grimace series, were you doing um, mixing in like these other elements like jungle and hip hop and, and stuff like that? Or did that come with Sonic Boom 6? It, we, we were towards the end. We'd lost kind of, we, we'd lost uh, the, 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 um, the mojo with it, really, with Grimace. Because it was just like we were we were kind of doing Scarpunk thing. And then a lot of the, a couple of tunes like what we ended up doing on an early Sonic Boom 6 stuff ended up as that they, they, they were the, at the end of Grimace. So it was kind of like, Actually, we want to do all these different stuff, and it was it was starting to make a little bit more sen- sense to us how we could uh, how we could you know turn people's heads and and uh, so we we split Grimace up and we we'd left it, and uh, then I was needed to do some recording at uni, so I got the tunes together and we did like three tunes, and then I was kind of like one of them was one of them was Northern Skies which ended up on the first album. And then one of them was like a bit of a sort of daft, shouty, hardcore punk tune, which was just a bit bit, bit of an outlier. But then we had this one tune called SB6, which was like the first tune we did. And then I recorded that, and then I sent it out to some fanzines and promoters because people were like, you know, what, what's Grimace doing or whatever. And then we got like two gigs with Cat Down. And then we were like, okay, let's let's do a live gig. I always kind of wanted to, do you know what I mean? But it was kind of like that wasn't what we said to everyone. It was like we're just going to go in and do it for my uni, for my project. And then uh, we got some gigs, and then it was from there we just got more gigs. So there's um, well, I want to say four or five, four or five EPs before you guys get to uh, your first album. Is that is that correct? Well, there's 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 like two. And then there was like a demo which we would have sold at gigs and that. Yeah. And then and then there was just some remixes and stuff as well. Because what what we ended up doing was the last thing we did with Moon Sky Europe, we put out like a compilation of like everything up to that point, which was probably like twenty tunes or something. Uh, but yeah, so it was only like two actual EPs that we did with uh, Ace from Skunk and Ansi. What was the release that came out on on Moon? So we had two EPs. Uh, one was called um, the Turbo EP, um, and then the other was called Sounds to Consume. And then they had like Monkey See, Monkey Do, and Blood Froil on them and stuff, and uh, the Raper Punk to Come, which were like our bigger tunes, is like where we played live and that. And um, then we did uh, we did a bonus edition of of Sounds to Consume, what had all the everything on it and that was before rough guide yeah i don't know if you can get that anymore we should get it on spotify and that but it's uh <laughs> it's just finding the time but we will we will i didn't know until recently that uh, moon europe continued on after moon us dissolved which was i think 20 2002 maybe yeah. 2001 yeah. so so because you, your thing came out like a few years after moon us was already dissolved it's because they had that they had a music channel um they they had like a a a music video channel so you know like MTV but it mm-hmm. was it was a oh what was it called I can't remember um PT put P P P rock yeah yeah and so i think that sort of did quite well 
Um, so, so, so it kept going. It kept going from that. I think my memory is very hazy up until I stopped drinking. So forgive me if I'm not. I don't know many of the facts. <laughs> I know facts about everything, but I can't remember stuff about <laughs> Like I know everything about everything else, but I struggle to remember the name of the second EP then. Uh, yeah, but I, yeah, I can remember everything else. So Maybe you know this. I was reading too, This I find this fascinating, that uh, Moon Europe didn't exclusively release Ska too, that they, even though it was called Moon Ska, that they would also release bands that were not Ska at all. Well... Not really. I mean, only maybe they had they had a, they had a couple of bands that were like punk bands that did like a couple of ska punk tunes, like uh, you know, like a band like say Goldfinger or No Effects, where it's not like they don't do any ska, but you wouldn't be like that's a ska band. Okay, you know? okay. They, but, so they did a couple of bands what were like kind of No Effects uh, type punk, very very. Um, influenced off American sort of you know punk bands actually kind of skate punk yeah yeah because they did they did by the end they had a couple of bands that were just kind of like skate punk but it was all very it was all very British bands mostly very British bands that kind of were listening to US punk um, it was it wasn't like they went completely out of a limb and released kind of like some indie band or something it was all it was all kind of of that sort of skate punk ilk yeah can you remember some of those like the those bands that you're talking about yeah man yeah yeah so the, the first bands that they had was like sponge lubby nugget and shooting goon who were great and then they had a band called uncle brian who turned into a band called whitmore um and then they had um they had a, an irish band uh called mixed witch and then they had a band called Farce, who were really good. Like we used to play with Farce a lot. They were they they were really they they're brilliant. If anybody's like not checked them out, I mean their stuff's on Spotify, I think, or at least the Moonscar album is. Um and they, they kind of had the twin guitar thing. They were quite they influenced us quite a lot in terms of the way that they kind of did the arrangements with the two guitars and the harmonies. And they used quite a lot of metal riffs and kind of uh, it was very kind of um Kind of techie without being anoraki, like sort of like mixing of Iron Maidens and sort of Wishbone Ash style, you know, harmonized guitars. That, so that was like, you know, on City of Thieves, we with our third album, we did that kind of thing, and Fast was always something that we we listened to. Um, so that, they were a great band. They were on Moon Sky Europe, but there's also a band called Zen Baseball Bat. You know, just just thinking now through all the bands, they were a band from Witness uh, in Merseyside. Um, and they 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 were very unique. They they're still going. They they had a few years off, but they're well worth checking out. They've got a very northern brand of humour, almost like the fall type, mm. uh, sort of like kind of like Arctic Monkey style lyrics, where it's like uh, sort of kitchen sink. Um, I just, I remembered, yeah, from the bus stop to the bomb was one of their tunes. It's all quite kind of like almost kind of cobbled streets and uh, real good sense of humour. They had a tune called. Uh, an ode to Purple and Purple is like a, um, from the northwest of the UK. He's oh god, I mean he's a real person. I'm not sure if you should like, but he, he, at school it was like people would be like, "Oh, Purple Aki, you'll get ya." And um, it was a guy who, uh, and he's a real guy. 
who was um, he used to go up to kids and ask them to squeeze his muscle, asked to squeeze the muscles and stuff. So he was like what you call in America, you call him a bogeyman, but he was a real guy. He's he, like an urban legend, but real. But he's completely true, yeah. But they, they had on their tune, they had a, on their album, they had a tune called An Ode to Purple Aki. I mean, if you watch, just go on Google and put in Purple Aki, you'll see him. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's, he's still about. He's not actually. He died a few years ago. He came out of prison, asked someone to squeeze his muscles, and then died. <laughs> they squeezed his muscles too hard. He's keeled right over. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ... How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So I want to talk about your first album, but I want to go back and touch on something you said about the, 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 the paper you wrote about genre terrorism. So you, you mentioned this idea that... Um, the specials influence in, in uh, UK bands, you know, is, is farther reaching than ska bands. And I, I think this is an interesting point. I've told people this before, and I always feel like they kind of look at me in shock when I tell them like, yeah, the streets and blur were influenced by the specials. Like it's the kind of people have a hard time grasping that, but you can really hear the influence of the specials in those two bands. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, I suppose if you're, I'm trying to see into a mindset who wouldn't hear, you know, let's push things forward or, you know, uh, there's a tune on, on by the Blur where it's like, it's almost like, but I suppose they're commercial tracks. You might not, you might not know, but it's like, I, I, you don't, I don't think if the specials came out today, they wouldn't be playing Scar from the 60s. You know, they'd be playing, it's that their, their mindset at the time was not uh it was not really retro it was it yeah. was harnessing something that was uh that, that that was exciting and they'd tapped into from being in youth clubs and stuff and and uh yeah it, they, they weren't a, a back a, 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 a band that looked back in terms of the way that they created new sounds they, they definitely obviously drew off influences of bands from the 60s and and the, and the early 70s and stuff but yeah, I mean the the is it, I mean look at what Jerry Dammers does now. He is, you know, he's the architect behind the specials, and you know he has been, you know, involved in dub and drum and bass. And if you go and see him do a, a DJ set, you know he was involved with like Roots Maneuver and stuff like that. So he sort of went into that uh, maybe more the dance music side of things and more the sort of party side of things, and that was that was something that we were always you know, super in touch with and super interested as well. So I think that that, the, that side of what Scar is and then can become as much as the kind of, you know, rock and roll band um, side of Scar music that, that a lot of people maybe think of first. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That, that that's kind of, that that's part of it as much as anything else. It's, it's you know, it's a dance from it's Jamaican dance music uh, that, you know, that's what, that's what it was. And that 
vein still runs through. It's when people talk talk about Scar, a lot of the time they're talking about what has been come to be sort of generally thought of and stereotyped to Scar, but Scar's Scar's a specific sort of groove that can be that can be put in anyone, you know, any any band's style of music really. Yeah. People think of it as like, you know, ska revivals married to punk rock, but that's just, that's not necessarily the case and not necessarily how it has to be um, executed, you know, especially as a modern genre, a modern experimental genre. It doesn't have to be, punk rock doesn't have to even be in the equation at all. The thing is, you get so many like people, like A-list artists like Lady Gaga or Ariana Grande and they will always have a song that's either that's a bit reggae scar like mm-hmm. it you know it's that kind of and with the specials thing when people can't see the link it's probably because if you're not a fan of the specials you've probably only heard Ghost Town and maybe another famous special song like you know it's it it's more about if you know the specials and you actually listen to Blur and not just the greatest hits, then you you, you can you can hear it. Yeah. So I guess yeah, because I'm I, and and it's weird, isn't it? It's what it's what you hear because often I remember somebody said, um, somebody told me that, or I read that Blur got together after they saw the Smiths on a TV show in the UK. And I think, oh, Blur aren't like the Smiths. And it's it's just this preconceived idea I had because I didn't want them to be like the Smiths. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and my brain was just like, they are not like the Smiths. And now I listen to them and I'm like, oh, my God, that is so the Smiths. It, it's just, yeah, it, it's, it's people's people's brains are strange. When it comes to music, people, it's it's one of those things. It's like watching watching a film or something that everyone has an opinion of, mm. on, and they're kind of entitled to that. But then some people don't really know much about it, and but the fact that they hear it and it's in such a, such a massive part of people's lives, it, it thinks you know it's like the, the whole social media thing. It's like I, I'm entitled to an opinion about it, and here it is that doesn't sound like that because, or mm. that isn't that style of music because, and things that, that are incredibly complicated get boiled down to, to, you know, simple things. But I mean, yeah, you, you can hear, uh, you can hear the specials in, in a lot of different, different artists. And, and uh, I think that people make, at the end of the day, it's because they're not wearing pork pie hats and jogging on the spot. That's why people yeah. <laughs> don't necessarily draw the line back to the specials. And, um, and, and and blur because it's scars become to denote this one thing to most people that are just into sort of rock music, they just think it is this thing where it's like, there's that, you know, absolutely nauseating meme that went around and went completely like millions of retweets. It's like, what is scar? It's, it was like, I have just heard what's scar defined as what a 13 year old hears in his head when he gets extra mozzarella sticks and nothing in the world is more accurate. And you just like, as a fan of Scar, you're like, no, what that is, is your conception of what Scar is. 
But you're entitled to think that, and a lot of people do think that because there's been a lot of silly scar bands. And uh, but for better or worse, it's generally quite uh, upbeat and happy and energetic music that makes people smile. And there's a lot to be celebrated about that. But a lot of rock music is, you know, it's four guys in skinny, white guys in skinny jeans bending over the guitar, you know, uh, uh, moody in your bedroom and rock and roll. Scar's not that. And that's why Scar isn't cool. Because even now, people in the 40s read Pitchfork and, you know, that that Scar is, you know, seen as this, you know, this other, this embarrassing thing. But the reason it's embarrassing to them is because they were into it when they were 16. Do you know what I mean? It's that, it's that, me- it's that meme with Andy from whatever he's called in, in, in a, that, that um, Andy Samberg, where he's like, I, I will never leave Scar and that this is me for the rest of my life. And that's the, on our first album, we had a tune and I said, you, and, I, and I'd already seen that come in. Because then they all started listening to Gruff Punk or Against Me, who were a brilliant band. But then the, all that scene came out and they were all wearing checker. They all looked ridiculous in the checkerboard and the big punk rock hair. And then suddenly they all had beards. And and and, and that was like, you used to play a fucking trumpet. Now you're flying a broom, not bad. We're flying a broom. Was like, you got, then they, there was a metal scene, wasn't they, after the, it was like a hardcore sort of like screamo. Um, post-hardcore metal thing. And uh, I saw the kids uh, like Satan's Hollow, the club in Manchester. Honestly, the ones that were the most ridiculous scar heads who'd had the big, real big fish T-shirts on and uh, the side of their head died checkerboard. Like, literally a year later, they're all straightening their hair and putting on eyeliner. And it's like, it's them are the ones what laugh at scar and go, oh, because it's because they, they just think of it as being this cheesy music that they like for a yeah. bit when they were 18. But you drop a scar, Mongo's Hi-Fi, drop a scar track at a party, at a rave, everyone goes mad, adult, grown adults. It's just your perspective of it. And if you come in and looking at scar from the perspective of someone that's kind of just in a white rock, then you will see it as a, as a kind of a faddy thing. Because, it, because you know, in, in America, you guys are, uh, talk about it in waves. We don't really do that as much, but that's a big thing, but... What what a wave denotes is that it it burns hot for that certain amount of time. So then certain acts become to define it, and then the then the the the, the people that are then the imitators and some imitators are great, but you know each of these waves gets defined by a massive band, and then you get your imitators, and then it and then it fizzles down again. But that's fine because you know once once something comes out of the limelight, then it. It does filter away the people that were only in it as a fad. Yeah, I I tend to steer the conversation away from the wave discussion because I agree. I think it's I don't I don't think it's even accurate to define ska in the U.S. because no the the mainstream boom of ska in the mid to late '90s was there was like about 16 years of a pretty vibrant underground ska scene in the U.S. So it wasn't like it wasn't like it just hit out of nowhere. It was built upon you know, all of these bands and all of these fans and zines and all of this stuff. So it's really, it really mischaracterizes uh, what happened, I think. And it, it, apart from the global hit of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, um, the the big tunes by No Doubt and um, Sublime, like Real Big Fish were a big band and Less Than Jake, but they were more like in the, they weren't like as, as on empty, like over here. Mighty Mighty Boss Toads, No Doubt, and Sublime, they they all were big. Do you know what I mean? They got they got big things, but it's not even like No Doubt and Sublime were playing like 
scar scar music it was just scar stat you know add scar in there so it wasn't like yeah it was like elements of it yeah yeah it was like my, my boss tones that was the one time where do you know what i mean they did have on impression that you can get on on sky one on the football and then uh someone afterwards would go it's been a while since i've heard a scar tune jerry and he's like go, oh yeah i used to like love madness when i was at university you know that was the that was the <laughs> only time where you ever heard like you know People referee or they play it on Radio One, and it's great to hear some scar back in charts. But that was that was it, really. Do you know what I mean? The rest of the bands weren't really, uh, you know, it, it wasn't what what normal people would. If my dad saw No Doubt playing bloody Don't Speak on top of the pops, he wasn't going to be like, oh yeah, scars back, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about your first single. Right, was All In with Coolie Ranks. Mm-hmm. So. Tell me a little bit about that. I know you guys toured with Cooley and you backed him. Was this before the song? Is that part of what led to it or did that happen after? Um, it would have been before because it would have been before. Yeah, because if we were supporting him, I don't think we had anything like out. We That would have been when we did. We had that demo. Um, and then we it, it would have just been like, uh, when, we, when we wrote that tune. Yeah, what do you I remember? reckon we just, we mm. Well, we did a tune called Monkey See, Monkey Do, which was like a Toots and the Maytals piano loop. And then we did a rap on that. And then we just were like, we want one for the new album. And then it was like Burning Spear, Days of Slavery, that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then I can't remember, Layla Jew. Then we just <laughs> we just, yeah. just sent it over, sent it over because that was when... It was that you know now you could you could literally say to anyone now uh, you could go to your your grandma grandma put down sixteen bars <laughs> for me and she'd go okay I'm just downloading garage band and she'd be able to do it on a phone but back back in them days honestly you had to I I, I mean I get I, there weren't even Dropbox then was there you had to do like I can't remember somehow we probably had to like airmail in the, the CDs. What year was it? Two thousand six. Maybe there was like maybe there was some kind of big transfer thing. No, I think he was here. I think he was in the UK, and that's how we did it. Oh, you know what? That is way beyond my memory. We definitely it. He was definitely in the UK when he did when he did the gigs. And I because I I remember uh, I remember getting it as a file. Yeah, and we had to chop it up and that. And and um, he did loads. He did loads of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like he does. He's singing some bits and bobs, and then he was like, and I was like, oh, I like that bit, I like that bit. Um, and then we put that middle eight together, um, and we put that under him. We didn't, yeah, I don't know. We, that was when we were getting a bit more, like, when we started, it was literally like four or five of us in a in a garage and, like, going, and then, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this. By that point, we were getting more, like Ben had his logic set up and all that, so we'd write more on the computer. So we probably uh we've got that vote. We we sent him the loop and the B and probably what I was doing, and then he sent a load back, and then we made that chorus where we kind of like swap. Uh, he does a bit, and Layla does a bit. It just ended up. It just ended up good. Yeah, no, that song's great. Do you remember any of that? Any anything about that song or touring with Cooley, Layla? Yeah, yeah. So it was weird because the rest of the band were his backing band. So they were playing in they were they were playing 
as the Pilfers. Was it the Pilfers or maybe just as Cooley Ranks? But they were the backing band. Well, it was just yeah, yeah, just Cooley Ranks band. We want we weren't pretending to be the Pilfers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I can't say I remember much about the tour. I remember he punched me in the stomach. Uh, <laughs> really? Why? <laughs> Why did he get punched in the stomach? Because he was, he was, he was affectionate. Oh, okay. He was, uh, he was showing me some singing lessons, which involved punching me in the stomach. Oh, like uh, bracing your core and, and singing. Yeah. Mouth. And I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, I love Cooley, but at the time I was like, this man, why is this man punching me in the stomach? And obviously, the rest of the band thought it was hilarious. I do remember um, doing the all-in video with him. That's when that's when I really bonded with Cooley because he just brought like I I on only on reflection am I seeing that throughout the whole history of the band. I just took myself way too seriously, like way too seriously for what we were doing and way too seriously than I needed to. And I just remember on that video shoot, um, Cooley, he just brought this air of uh, just fun, you know, have fun, don't take yourself seriously. Um, you know, it doesn't matter, have a laugh. And it, it I remember it being really, really cold. Um, and it was just... It was just a re. It was just a wonderful experience, and but I do um, um, a very embarrassing memory that I have. Um, my best friend Mary, we we did a gig and Cooley, <laughs> and Cooley was like the special guest, and he came, he came on, he came on. This was years and years ago, and my friend was really drunk, and uh, he came on and he did his bit in all in. I think we're playing we're playing in Manchester, and no lie, no word of a lie. <clears throat> For the whole evening, she thought he was Coolio. Gangster's Paradise Coolio. And she just thought it was the best thing ever. And now I often sing to her as I walk through the valley in the shadow of death. Just because she thought it was Coolio. And that, yeah, I had to share that with you all. Quick one or cool. It's like Layla says. He's yeah. He's one of these guys that he's he's uh he's always he makes you just go. Uh, it's like he believes that with a bit of self belief you can do anything, and he can do anything. He's it's boundlessly confident, and he's one of those people that's completely magnetic. So when he comes on stage, even if people don't know him, he can get a crowd just enraptured in him. Yeah, and we were going around touring with him. I remember like playing York, and you've got like you know fourteen year old these 14 year old white kids that are like just like in in rapture by him like and 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 he he just had this vibe that you could just you you so when he came he turned up in this taxi and and we went to the rehearsal room and he was we, we started playing it and he was obviously had some nerves now i'm thinking about it he obviously had some nerves because he's like this the, the guy that put it together liam was like you know these guys are great musicians they could play anything but he didn't know. He was like, oh, this Sonic Room 6, are they going to be good? And then when he when he heard that, we had all the tunes down. It was like kind of like... Dum, 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 dum. And I remember him starting to do like like bogling across the air, <laughs> across the rehearsal room. And then lately, do you remember he started running at yeah, the wall and jumping up jump. the wall? Yeah. <laughs> we, had a, we, had, we had a tune that was like, you got me climbing up the oh, wall. Yeah, and he was yeah, like yeah. running and climbing up the wall. But I always remember getting in a taxi with him. 
and I was like, um, can you go, can, I was asking him about doing All In, and I was like, can you go, like, something like, can you go, um, my name's uh, Kuna Ranks from Jamaica, you don't know. I just, like, just said it, do you know what I mean? Just doing a kind of, like, bit of, like, patois-ish, just to give him his, like, what he, uh, like, give him what I thought I'd imagine him doing. And he burst out laughing. He was crying with <laughs> laughter. And he was like, he was like, Bernie, say that again, man. Say that again. I was say, I was like, so you guys say Kuna you don't know. And he was like, oh my God, man. He was like slapping me, grabbing me. And he was like, this is wild. The guy from Manchester is telling me, you don't know. Oh, this is brilliant. And straight away, we just, we just broke the ice. Do you remember that, Layla? Yeah, yeah. It's like you're race, 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 explaining to Cooley how to do Papa. <laughs> he's like, get, he's like, get out of here. <laughs> no, he was lovely. I mean, he took it the way it was meant because it was just, it was just real and it was, it was music. He's got such a good heart. He's got such a good heart, and you know, we often. This is what always happens. We'll be recording an album and we'll go. Oh, you know what? Not in a bad way, but we've had Cooley on loads. Like, let's let's reach out to different people. Let's see what other people do. And you know what? Every single time we go back to Cooley, because he's yeah, amazing. He's got that warmth. And like we we asked him for an intro where he basically does what Captain Picard does at the beginning of TNG. So space, the final frontier, and he does it in Cooley Rank's voice. And most people would be like, look, I've known you for 15 years. I'm always doing crazy stuff for you, like totally do one. And But no, he did it. He did, like, he quit, came <laughs> back with it. And it's amazing. And we still use it when we go on stage. And every single time, it, like, does this, like, dubstepy start, like, intro to TNG. And then it goes, space. The final frontier. I can't. I can't even do it. And every single time, we piss ourselves laughing. <laughs> that is Cooley Ranks. But you know, you know what? Though, just quickly, and then we'll, we, we need to move on. <laughs> but he's a, one, one thing that's cool, uh, cool about Cooley is uh, that lineage with the New York Scar Seed, like the Toasters, such an amazing and influential American band, and that fits exactly what you're saying about, you know, it's if it's a wave, it's 16 years long, and they're the, you know, the the real uh, sort of like the architect of that. And Cooley, his, what he did with the Pilfers and tunes like Skungle and, and what he was trying to do, that's very, uh, we see a real kindred spirit in that, where it's like, yeah, there's, there's this scene, but it can also be something else, but we within that scene. So Cooley was always a guy within that, you know, that ska punk and the, and the New York scene, but doing something slightly outside and doing something that's more sound system related. And, and that, I think that we really did go, he's a, an American forebearer of what we're trying to do here. Brown, definitely, yeah. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Really touch too much on uh, 
where you guys are coming from lyrically. So let me throw the song Piggy in the middle. Why don't you tell me about that lyrically? That was that was literally about a kid from my school called Adam, who I'm, who I seen at the pub, and he was he'd been a copper for a few years, and the 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 pre-chorus bits are literally paraphrased from what he said to me. These hippies wanna take the piss. I push him on the ground and that because he knew he he was my he, he was friends with me, but he was younger than me. So it's like a lot of the time where it's like you know I'm growing up now. And he knew I was in at free parties and he knew I was doing illicit stuff. Not illicit, but illegal stuff. So he just wanted to, but he still wanted to be my mate. And it, I, I felt really, I felt so much more, because back then, do, do, I always saw it like this. Sonic and Six is a punk band because of the lyrical content, really. And yeah. we don't mostly sing songs about you know, falling in love, and it's like leave that to other bands. Like I, we're a punk band, and we're, we're we're documenting our lives and what we see. And at that time, um, I was you know, it's about going to a to a free party and seeing a copper um, starting more trouble than the, the finished, which I saw multiple times. Do you know what I mean? And now I look back on it, and I've got different views on it in some ways because i kind of see the other side to it uh, uh, uh. but i certainly you know i know which way my bread's buttered and and, and i think I, and i know that i have been uh involved in situations where police have antagonized and bullied and and created um violent and confrontational situations um because it was probably easier for them in that situation to raise it to the point of confrontation and get some arrests and and take some of the frustration out on these free party hippies than it was to actually be fair and police the situation properly so that was a kid from my school and that was directly and I, 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 there was an, the artistic license there is i never saw him come and break up a free party and get in a load of fighters and knock everybody over and make them go home but I saw him bragging about to me the way that he treated people, and that was uh, that just came together for the song. So that I mean that is it, that was pretty pretty much a true uh, just a, just a, and it was like yeah we were a punk band you know you know f- from uh, singing about you know the man and the authority and you know pushing against the status quo that's what it's all about and it's like that's what a punk band is it might not even necessarily be the most, uh, the way that I feel it in the biggest, you know, the most nuanced discussion of a situation, but it's an expression of, uh, of that, you know, stance of sticking it to the man. And that's, that's what punk's about ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, on your second album, uh, there's a song called, uh, the sound of revolution. Mm-hmm. I was looking on Spotify. Uh, this song has, at least twice as many plays as the second most played song. Yeah. Was I didn't, was this even a single? No, do you know why? Yeah, well, what? we did a video for it. Do you know why that is? Yeah, because it's on uh it's on Spotify the Essential Scar playlist. You should know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it's on the it's on uh yeah, the Essential Scar. It's essential, so that's it, why. It's an essential piece of scar. It's an essential <laughs> slice of this culture, man. Yeah. Um <laughs> The, the uh, so I think it's like 
there's there's all like you've got got like cat down and random hand and stuff is on that as well and maybe they put more bands than they check it's just perennially been on it i like that do you know what i mean that's like because it because that's what we wanted that tune to be like just like one of our one of our big guns we always had a good feeling about it and it just uh, uh, you know well, we made a video for it, but it was it, we made a video. I think it was a long time after the record had come out and stuff. So it, you know, it, the our marketing game wasn't what it is now. And but, it, but ironically, we were touring so much it didn't matter. And it's like the 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 tools at our disposal was slightly different then. But you, you know, if we were planning an album now, we would have had a strong video of that where before you know at the release of the album, but. It's still what I mean. My point is really though, as time went on, that just kind of became our anthem, really. But it was always kind of supposed to be, wasn't it, Layla? That was always a tune we were like, if if it's if if any tune's third on our album, that probably means I thought it was the best tune, I reckon. (laughs) So yeah, like I'm curious a little bit about you know what what kind of went into writing the lyrics of that song, or you said that you know you kind of viewed it as your anthem. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I, rem- I remember where we were when we wrote it. Like we were in this, yeah, we were in this little room in Salford that was supposed to be used. It was used as a tattoo studio, and it we 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 booked it out to write our second album. And um, what I remember with the thing with that was, I'd heard a tune. I know what it was. It was um, you know, on the Arctic Monkeys album, and he goes. Last night, these two bouncers, one of them's all right, another one's a scary, and it starts with his voice. And I heard that come on in a club, and I was like, it'd be badass if we had a tune that starts with the vo- with, with the vocal and then a the beat comes in under it. And um, I remember one thing that we did. We had a tune called Bigger Than Punk Rock on our first album, yeah. which everybody loved. And that became – and we didn't – We it's funny, sometimes you, you – it does surprise you. I think we thought it was quite cool because it had like a little rabbit at the beginning, but we didn't know we'd still be opening gigs with it in 2021 and that'd be like one of our anthems. So when we listened to Bigger Than Punk Rock, we were like, let's do an updated version of that, but let's make it a bit more polished and palatable because Bigger Than Punk Rock is a bit of a, <laughs> it's a bit rough and ready, whereas uh, Whereas Sound of Revolution's a bit more, it's all a bit more quantized. It's all a bit more uh, presentable. Maybe it's not got quite the spirit of the other one. But I, 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 I don't remember really what the. I know what the lyrics were about. Um, like did our music can change, you know, a kid's whole life, and that's the revolution. And um, but you know, it's like all them kind of punk rock slogans riot revolution radio rock it was just kind of like you know let's just you know kind of uh go for something that's a bit a bit obvious but um I, I, yeah, yeah. It, it ended up good that tune and it's a it's a fun one to play live uh but i don't really remember much about writing it yeah do you, do you remember anything about it that song leila I don't remember much from that period of my life. (laughs) 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 I'll be honest with you. I remember the rehearsal room. I remember the walk there and that we'd get chips and gravy. (laughs) We'd get chips and gravy on the way home. No, I mean, for me, like, you know, when, when somebody's written the lyrics, it's, it's kind of then trying to get into the heart of that and understanding it so that they're not just words on a page. If that, makes sense yeah. 
And for me, it's like, you know, that pa- that passion you have when you first, when you, when, when you were teen, not even a teenager, like I got into music when I was like, like properly got into music when I was 11. And I remember it, it, it changed my life. So, you know, there's the Rage Against the Machine lyric in it. And that, that song and that sound, when you first hear a band like Rage Against the Machine, it literally is like you, you, it's like you find, you found where you belong. And, Four to yeah, nine. Yeah, exactly. You know, but, but, but <laughs> it, it's so, it's so powerful. And I've had people saying to me that that's how they felt about that song. So it kind of, um, you know, that I can't speak for Barney, but he obviously didn't write that for that purpose. But when you do hear people say that, it's amazing because I remember being that kid and hearing, you know, hearing Guns N' Roses when I was 11 and just going, what is this and how do I be part of it? You know? I, mean, I, do, I, do, I do, with that tune, I do remember that, that with the vocals where it's like punk rock, punk rock, everybody do punk rock. Oh, it's not that tune. No, that's bigger than it's, punk uh, rock. That, but it's the kind of same thing, isn't it, where it's like, one tune, da, 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 the one yeah, tune yeah, yeah. at the time, that was where like grime was really yeah, popping yeah. off. And I'd watch watch Channel U, um, and it'd be like the early grime, and it'd be like, you know, uh, you know, the, when I go out the door, it's madness. See the way it is out there, it's madness, did it? And it'd say the same word again and again and again. So that was like, that was kind of trying to be like grime. And then the way that we had the beat, that's like, I think that. It was, yeah, it, it was pretty much like, let's mix our sort of star rock with kind of getting that urban influence. So I think that was kind of quite important in it. But even but even the even the boom is from the No Doubt tune. You know, we took our influences from, like, all over. I don't know if it was. It, it totally was. It's because... Yeah, well, that that was that was robbed off other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember you sent me that tune, and you're like, "Oh my god, like this song is amazing!" Like, and yeah, and we, I'm, I'm sure we had the discussion about having that. Oh yeah, let's like like that no doubt tune where it goes boom, do 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 do. Yeah, yeah, I know the song you're talking about. Yeah, boom, and it's like yeah, and and we were like, yeah, let's rob that. I must, I must have been drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also um, in in regards to sampling stuff, one of the things that I really like, and it's not a sample, but it's um, the beginning of Bigger Than Punk Rock has the has the intro riff from Rise Above by Black Flag. I think that's yeah. great. Like the idea of not only sampling from a electronic standpoint, but um, like just borrowing riffs as as a, as a reference. Yeah, well, we did that when we first started. We 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 did that loads. Like half of our sets was like, what's the word? Inter interpolations or interlopations? I've, it's one of those words where I've read it, but I don't. I can't. Yeah, it's inter, inter, interloped or something. Um, but yeah, we 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 used to do that loads and loads and loads and loads. We we take riffs off other thing. But then by that point, it was like, ah, oh, we better write our own <laughs> tunes. Like, you know what, in, in, in on the first two EPs, there's a bit more of those kind of bits and bobs. Um, there's a tune called That Devil Made Me Do It. And in the middle bit, it does like, 
Queens of the Stone Age, and then there's other bits where it quotes Operation Ivy and stuff. And we did that loads at the beginning, and then we realised that when you did that, you had to pay people publishing. <laughs> so we stopped doing it. But, but you know what I mean? It's not like uh, Greg Ginn's chasing after us for that beginning of uh, Bigger Than Punk Rock, because you're right, it is Rise Against, but it's right. slightly different. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's slightly different, but, it, but it's absolutely supposed to be that. And it's the whole point is it's like, yeah, it's like we play that because that's punk rock. But then it's like, yeah, but this is as well. So, I was reading this interview where, you know, we were talking about taking jungle and hip hop and grime and all that. But I was reading that Bangra was a style you had imagined would play a big influence as well, but didn't so much make it in. I'm curious about, I'm a little about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that it's the long and short of it is that we were, it was at that time, there was a, obviously you had the, um, the, Punjabi MC tune, and then you had a lot of like Missy Elliott um, and Timberland stuff that was bringing in Bangra style. But it was like, so in the stuff we were listening to at maybe like 2002, 2001, 2003, it was in there. But then it kind of, uh, it, 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 it was there. And then it kind of, none of us got into it. Do you know what I mean? So it mm. seemed so gimmicky. But on the first album and the first EP, we did like our versions of punk banger tunes. And it was really interesting because of that, the Asian connection. And with Layla and we, we went on this program, like an Asian arts program. And they were like, here's a band mixing banger and hardcore punk. And we would have loved to have been able to do that. But it just seemed disingenuous because nobody really listens to, <laughs> <laughs> except, for, except for that. Uh, you know, amazing um, Punjabi MC tune and, and a bit of, you know, it, a lot of, you know, uh, like Do even Dr. Dre and, and the big sort of like uh, commercial American hip hop producers at the time were mixing in Indian samples. I remember there's a tune called, but with Rakim on it, that's got an amazing, I can't remember what it's called now, but like, um, that it, it was a thing for a couple of years, but it was never anything that like, I mean, you even like one extra, which is the big sort of urban station here. That it's the same. They played it for a bit, and then they they stopped really doing it. So the thing is, it's got its own scene. It's got its own mm. artists, and the thing is, you can borrow from it, but you can't. It's hard. Yeah, you can borrow from it as like a gimmicky thing once, maybe twice, but unless you're actually from that scene then it's a little bit kind yeah. of taking the piss it's a, you know yeah like, yeah you know it, it's, I know, the, you know i know people sort of get like up in up in arms about cultural appropriation and stuff but but with that kind of thing that is so of its of its kind and it it has a it has a scene with artists that do well within that community like yeah we're okay to borrow it borrow it now and again because there's an asian singer book it we did our borrowing yeah and 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 i and i also think that um yeah it would have been disingenuous for us to approach every album and go here's that but you know what I, and to put it from another point of view and something that's maybe sounds a bit more selfish i don't know i think that when we were around in 2002 2006 that that when we were first coming out i was like Look at us. We're this band 
with the, that's a punk band from Manchester. We're mixing up all this stuff, and we've, we're doing this. Um, we're, we're sort of mixing in these Asian uh, urban music influences in there, and we've got a singer singing lyrics in Urdu. Um, that's pretty interesting, but nobody, nobody picked up on it, and nobody gave a shit. And then one, and they just called us a ska punk band. So on the <laughs> one hand, uh, so on the one hand, if I can be charitable towards myself there and go, uh, no, no, on the one hand, I can kind of go, well, maybe the proofs in the pudding. You guys weren't that into that kind of music, so that never really, that never really represented what you really were. So people didn't pick up on that but on the other hand you kind of go uh it's the the way that people perceive bands and talk about bands and and sometimes it isn't fair like it's sometimes you could be doing the most amazing thing and it's just the wrong place at the wrong time so i think that you know people still love that tune um sharina off rough guy people come up and say that's their favorite tune and that was written about a, a girl from school yeah. and in layla's voice where it's very that's there's a lot of truth in that tune like honestly, when we were doing gigs, we were so progressive for the crowds that we were playing to, the ska punk crowds in the UK, the white, very, very white, middle class, mainly boys crowd. Like we would play gigs and people would come up to me and say, oh, you'd be better if you didn't do that rap music. Mm. Like, that happened on multiple occasions. If you play places like Yeovil and, you know, just just middle-class white places, back then, what, 2005 or whatever, even, you know, which, which yeah, it was like 15 years ago, but it, it we've come such a long way since then because there was this always this vibe that we were weird, they were weird because we mix different kinds of music. But the thing is, it wasn't the different kinds of music that was weird to people. It's that we were mixing music that wasn't white. And and I'm not saying it to be contra- controversial. It 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 was a real problem for a lot of people that there was an Asian girl. Sorry, an Asian is different in America, but there was a Pakistani girl on stage rapping and singing in a voice that didn't sound like Gwen Stefani or the woman from Save Ferris and then this Mancunian guy that raps and didn't sound posh and people can dress it up as it you know if you think if if people thought we were shit that's absolutely fine but some of the comments we'd get it the the hidden agenda the hidden racism there was very very real mm-hmm. and i think now if we were to do that i think i think we'd be more accepted and you know what we are more accepted i get a lot more asian women coming up to me uh indian south you know south asian women coming up to me and saying i loved your band but i was not allowed to go to gigs because wow. because yeah because yeah if you're if if you're a if you're a South Asian or Indian girl who's fifteen and you're in Sonic Boom Six in two thousand and five, most probably yeah you weren't allowed to go to gigs. And it a lot of people don't really think about that, and and just it's really coming to light 
like speaking to people at gigs and online that we we have we've got a lot of fans that are not white and you know at the time it seemed like the loudest voices were those um were those people who were because the whole you'd be better if you if you didn't rap to me that's just racist it's a close it's a close cousin it's a close cousin if it, if if not if not out and out you know what I mean it's, but it's, that gets it yeah, well that's it I agree but it gets into semantics don't it it's like do, you know is is you know whatever let's not get in it to me as someone that to, yeah to me to someone to someone that isn't white that it that is a woman that is now adult enough to look back kind of trying to be objective about the experiences that I had because at the time I didn't. I, you know, I, I didn't see it that way. And hearing it from other people, there is a bit of that. I'm not saying that all scar punk people from 2005 that went to gigs in England were racist. They, the, the worst thing is they thought they weren't. Mm. <laughs> like, that's the thing. So <laughs> yes. they, they yeah. didn't, they, they wore like anti-Nazi uh, badges and stuff like that. But there's something that bristled them about a a, a, a yes. brown girl on stage rapping that it, that it, it bristled them and you know it's not for me to say why why that what what that was but we do, we don't need to dwell on negative that's not negative that, that, that that's a positive conversation for positive change no but what a hard cosign that that the the idea that there was people there that within the within the context of um, Scar Punk and singing along to Operation Ivy, we're talking about unity. But then when something that was actually slightly different than what would what would what unity would be there for, which would be like, let's unite the people that are different than us, absolutely didn't want to do that. But, you know, since the start of rock and roll, since the start of punk music, that the, these movements always get very conservative as, you know, uh, you know, be it hardcore punk or be it hardcore, you know, electronica. These, you know, you get these gatekeepers and you get these people that take it all far too seriously. And um, but yeah, that, there, there was there, there was definitely an irony there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back after this. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So your next album that you know we're talking about is uh, City of Thieves. Um. It's my understanding that this was like a concept album. Yeah, it was. Tell me a little bit about the con- the concept behind it. The concept behind it was of um, uh, it was an album about songs exploring the city, the concept and the the, the phenomenon of th- these developed areas where you know people congregated and built up, and all the sort of modern problems that they have inherent in them and how that because i mean the first two albums were, were just kind of like 
I, I, it's not, we're not like the first band to get to the third album and then go, right, we're going to try and do somewhere <laughs> a bit more, a bit, you know, a bit, a bit out there. Because you kind of done the same album twice. We certainly kind of did. And then it was like, okay, well, let's try and do something different. So uh, uh, one thing that we did a lot on the first two records, and it was always, when I listen to our stuff now, I go, that, that was cool, was... We always used uh, like samples out of films and public domain library and stuff like that because that was from hip hop. That was from Wu Tang Clan and 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 the, and the um, you know kung fu uh, samples. So we just you know thought oh we'd be a punk band, but we use samples from old films and TV and and stuff. Um, and we found. Ben wrote that tune, um, Welcome to the City of Thieves, and it was called, originally it was called Christmas in the City of Thieves. It was like an acoustic song, and it it, it was just like Christmas in the City of Thieves. I think, it, yeah, it was like just another, it, it was like basically what the tune ended up turning into, but um, we, we, we sort of, that kind of just spawned the idea of doing it as a concept album, but we had this, at the same time, we... we it was again. It was like a situation where it's it was slightly different. And so, what year was that? Two thousand and nine. There was like websites where you could download um, samples and, and stuff. But then, by that point, we knew that we had to get stuff that was in the public domain. We wised up a bit because uh, we got in trouble for some samples on the first on the first record, which I'm not even going to go into because you know it's it's it, it, it it's they're still there. <laughs> so we we did a. Uh, we we got there's a site archive.org which was then kind of a bigger thing. So I just downloaded loads and loads of stuff, and we just used to listen to it on tour. And there was stuff like films like Driller Killer, which we knew were in public domain, and we 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 uh, Night of the Living Dead, which we'd pour over them and just pull samples out of them. But then we got found this one called The Growing City, and it was uh, this like half hour docu- documentary from the early uh, like. Uh, it's kind of like, I think it's like the 50s and um, it's got a narrator talking about the the way that cities build up but also the problems uh, and then we kind of just got the good bits of that and then wrote wrote the album around it. But I reckon we probably had like about seven or eight of the tunes already and just like on the F-bomb as well, they, we didn't start out writing it as a concept album. It was probably when we were over halfway through. We went, oh, well, if we just tweak that and make that about that. Because I remember, for instance, Bang, 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 Bang was a completely different tune about something completely different. And then we, uh, when, once we got onto this city thing, it, uh, it, it, then that informs it. And then it just kind of, it's downhill from there. Um, so what thing about that album, I think that the, it's... Um, as any any musician probably does, when you listen to an album back, you kind of go, uh, I'd have changed that. That's kind of the first thing you hear. But what I think is good about that record is the concepts and the 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 the, uh, the, the, the samples and the art uh, and the whole package of it is good. It's just some of the songs aren't very good. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, that that that's the album that got us noticed. You know, that's the album that we played you know we played like we played Reading and Leeds festival it was that it was at that point when people that weren't into the scene 
were noticing us. Um, all the other, all the other bands. Yeah, yeah that, that, probably, <laughs> that probably helps. But, I, but, and I think it also, you know, when you get to your third album, it's kind of like, well, we're here to stay because, like, your first album, you kind of get lucky. Your second album is always like terrifying, and you're just trying to do better than the first time. And then your third album, you're just like, oh, you know what? Like, we can we can do this, and we have the concept, and it's very. And it's very of its time as well. Well, I say it's of its time, but loads of the songs on it, it sort of reflects the times that we're living in now, except it's just got a little bit worse, not to, you know, not to be negative. Um, and, <laughs> and yeah, and I remember uh, uh, Gallows had done an album, a concept album at the same time. Uh, it was released at the same time about about Britain. Yeah, Great Britain. And, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah Great Britain. Um, and it's interesting because it shows that that there was a certain set of people that were connected to what was going on in the UK and seeing it from the same point of view, but creating it differently musically. So that's pretty. That's pretty amazing, you know. Yeah. Well, what would you say, Layla? Um, was commenting on its time you know what you know you said it's it's an album of its time possibly now as well too many cars on the road too many you know people like bit building buildings for building sake like you know we go you you in london manchester big cities like so many buildings brand new buildings but nobody can afford to live in them like you know that that it's insane. Like the petrol crisis, we just had a big petrol crisis here. So you've got people uh, kicking off because they can't get petrol. And then there's climate people that are like blocking the roads because they're like, the world is literally dying. And we the, we cover that on, on, on the album. And, you know, it's social commentary. And, and you look at the world now, you know, and I kind of got in not not an argument, but I got into a discussion with someone the other day because they were like, "If you choose to see the bad stuff, you'll only see the bad stuff, and then you won't see. You'll be looking if you're looking at the ugly tree, you will miss the beautiful forest." And I get that, but I think sometimes you've got to look at that ugly tree because it's not going away. Yeah, I've been yeah dealing with this for the last. <laughs> decade and and you know it's like it's it's there's a very fine line between apathy and not you know I know people that are so unhappy they're so unhappy because of the state of the world that they're sat on their ass on the phone and I'm like you can't ruin your life because of Twitter you do something and go and look at the go and look at the other trees but just get up off your ass and do something because if you're stuck in that if you're stuck in that cycle you're you're wasting your life but then if you're just going out and going oh you know it's okay like everything's brilliant you know I'm not I'm not I'm not going to take sides at some point you know I, I haven't got kids so for me like me and Nick often have this discussion and me and Barney do as well that it's a lot easier to be apathetic when you haven't got kids because 
why should I'm not saying this is me, but why should I care what happens with to the world once I'm gone? Like, you know, I I, I should do, but it makes it harder for me. It makes it harder for me to go. Whereas I've got a mate that's got kids and she's just like, she's really passionate about stuff like recycling and um, the world being a better place because she is leaving kids behind. And it's just, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really, it makes me really, um, I feel privileged to have been in a band with someone that writes lyrics like Barney does because it isn't, it isn't easy to sort of put your, um, put your mark down and go, right, this is where we sit, but without actually getting on your soapbox and putting people off because we know you know we've like we've played with bands that are so political that are so like in your face and for me that doesn't work for me personally and I know I know loads of people that love bands like that but for me it's about having a great time at our gigs and going home and going that fuck you I won't do what you tell me what what's that about and looking at lyrics and going oh I get it well we decided that quite early on because it yeah was, it was it, it was it because it was twofold it was one we were just such a bunch of fuckheads that like you, you couldn't really take <laughs> us seriously couldn't really take us that seriously as and because there's so much so much humor in it do you know what I mean and it was just like no, but, but we just like having a good time do you know what I mean it wasn't like we wanted. We weren't going to be the. We if somebody came and got in touch with us and said, "Can we? Can we set up like um, our activism thing on your merch desk?" We'd be like, "God, yeah, I've had, I've had it." But we not really getting the flyers and that ourselves. It was just like <laughs> so. So what? What it was was at the beginning, like Layla would sometimes we do the things like every gig we'd say something about something or you know have that as part of the set, and then you know this song's about this and that, and then we quickly went. Nah, that's just just the lyrics of the lyrics. That's point what between the tunes, we just have a laugh and speak to the audience. You know what I mean? And then sometimes, like if I was feeling it, do you know what I mean? Before a song and and something had happened in the news or something, then when you t- actually do start talking about something, addressing something, then people got more stirred up and more excited mm. by it because they knew that that was coming from a real place. Otherwise, it comes across really disingenuous and. And it comes across, and you know what? People are at a gig. There's a frivolity. Unless you're at a gig of, like, if you go and see Rage Against Machine, War on Women, like, uh, like you, you, you know what you're in for. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But, like, if you come into it, if you're... Well, Satellite Dolor Watch don't stand there between tunes uh, giving a sermon, so that's, a, you know, that's an interesting case <laughs> in point. No, yeah, 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 you're right, actually. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't. Because he says, you know why? Because he says it in his lyrics. And, and you know, you, you get, there's loads of, like, right-wing meatheads that don't understand what the fuck you don't tell oh, me totally. is. That's the beauty of music. You oh, can God, t- yeah. inter- You can t- interpret it how you want. So, I mean, I agree. I, if somebody if somebody's genuine and, and you know, Billy Bragg, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to begrudge Billy Bragg giving me a little bit of a sermon because he's, because he, because he, because he walks the walk and the talks the talk, he does so much that he's allowed to have. But and that's real, and he's clever and he's learned on these subjects. 
you don't need me. You don't need me or me or Layla going on about the news, do you? Really? <laughs> oh God, no, no, no. You know what? We don't. We don't need to because we're funny. And the band was it's fr- <laughs> it was frivolous. It, it was was you know what I mean? It's a car, it's a cartoon, but it was a car, it's a good cartoon. Do you know what I mean? It's like it, it's it's like you know Futurama or the Powerpuff Girls. Good cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> I want to take a little sidestep really quick. And you guys mentioned that all a lot of the other bands had broken up. Um, mm. What what's how did you guys stay together? You know how we stay together? Because we've had this manager since we were about 18. And for me, because he's always like tried to steer the ship uh, the best that he can, it we've never really had the chance to split up. <laughs> like, you know, whereas all whereas <laughs> these other bands, you know. Well, it was several years when he when we didn't speak to him, but Yeah, but it doesn't matter. He's still here. He's still here. I spoke to him yesterday. Um no, but but the thing is as well, when you get to a certain age, like you get to your early twenties mm-hmm. or or mid twenties, and you're like, ah, I'm actually making no money. I'm still living at home. I've got to do a, a you know, a not just a basic job to to get money to be able to tour and be in a band but that's what we wanted to do Mm -hmm. it was no that you know we we never not wanted to do it that's the thing there's a yeah there was a couple couple of things that that that, that, that's all totally agree with that but then one of them was that um We'd already tr- we'd already tried to be the band in Grimace and, and then split up and then we got a second go at it and the second time we did it we did it a lot better in terms of we very quickly started making headway and then once you make headway uh, and you you're that bit more older and a bit of that bit more sort of cynical and learned about it you you feel more in control of it and even though it always felt very difficult and like we had the odds stats against us and we didn't have the natural talent that some other bands did i always felt that we had a good idea of who we were and we were in control of it so it didn't feel like it got out of control but another thing was i just personally and and certainly cases for neil and layla and nick um always just wanted to be musicians that was kind of we have to do this whereas a lot of other bands they'll find that they're at university reading astronomy or somewhere and then you know they'll join a band and and then that'll get big for a year or two and then at some point they go that's not really what i wanted to do but that was all we wanted to do and we've we've me and layla have ended up working in the music industry because we gave the best years of our life to a band and now we're not now we're useless at doing anything else <laughs> so we have to do it. it's it's funny but it's totally true like or, or, you know no I, I can relate i work with people younger than me that they they finish they finish school, they got a job, or you know, if if they were lucky, they went to university. They got a job, <clears throat> and they're like what mid thirties, early thirties, mid thirties, and they're literally done. They're done with life because they've not done anything. But they had a, they had a, a few fun years, and then they they they've just gone into working. And for us, you know, we, we, we did, like, we got in a van and we travelled the world. And, you know, hand on heart, I did not appreciate it at the time. But looking back at it, I'm like, 
my my working career only started two years ago. So I'm just like, <laughs> I love working because I'm like, you know, I always, <laughs> but I always worked when I was in the band because, and that's another thing, you know, always had a job because I always needed to pay rent or, you know, needed money. But I didn't care about any of those jobs. I did, I did, but I didn't care as in like, this is my life. Oh, yeah. And now I just, I just feel so grateful because I did think, when, because we got back from Warp Tour, and I was like, oh, and you know, Barney had already like been doing a job for about a year, and I was like, oh, you know what, I'm gonna have to get a proper job, and the because the years of doing what we did in the band gave me the skills to be able to do the job that I'm doing now, and I, I truly believe that because there's no way I'd be as good at what I do now if I'd not had the band but at the time you know it was really frightening because because it's like well what can I do except for being a band it's all I've known for years you know but luckily I remember speaking to someone and they were like well you know you shouldn't tell people that you work it it bursts the bubble like it bursts the like this the, the image of being in a band and I was like fuck that it's like I'm I'm not going to shy away and to not tell people that I work because I want people to know that if you really want to be in a band, then it's really hard and you have to balance like two or three jobs. Yeah. And that, if if you if you love it that much, you'll do anything. And all of us in the band worked. You, we would get, we would come back at six in the morning and go straight to a job. And that's how we always did it. And we never resented it because it was like, it's made it made us who we were. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think it's great to burst that bubble because people don't actually understand how hard a lot of musicians work and how much sacrifices they make and how much especially especially working class ones that don't yeah, that don't yeah. have money. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't we we we're, we're a very very it's very rare in the UK at the moment for emerging artists or bands that currently exist to come from a poor background it doesn't it doesn't happen anymore and it's being wiped out even more because we we did music at school and now music is being taken music and arts is being stripped away from schools because they're seen as uh, a a nice to have and that you know we're talking about specials and blur and the smith none of them bands would exist if if they if they if they were if they were going now because they all did free music at school Mm -hmm. they were all able to you know get part-time jobs or or sign on or whatever to to be able to do what they love and you know not again don't don't want to turn it into like worries me because i'm from a poor background but you those kind of artists do not exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And the, in the specials day too, a lot of those bands, particularly the specials, those guys, those guys come from mixed backgrounds. You know, some of them are wealthy, like Jerry Dammers, I think came from a wealthy background, but some of the other were not, mm. but a lot of them were, a lot of them were like quitting their jobs and, and going on the dole. Yeah. Um, and, and that's how they kind of like, they use that period of time to get to where they needed to get to where they were making money as a band. 
A hundred percent. And you know what? Even like we, like Ben, who used to be in our band, <clears throat> his mum and dad have got a lot of money. And I always used to think, oh, I used to hate, I didn't hate him, but I do, it was just like, oh, you don't, you can just go home and go to bed. I've got to go to work. And you know, like I had a real, real resentment about that. Mm-hmm. But at some mm-hmm. point, however rich your parents are, they just go, enough of this band bit, yeah. this band stuff now. You've got to grow up. Yeah. And so it doesn't really matter. Like it, that that money runs out as well. And it's just, but we, ju- we just kept going. We kept going. I'm so proud of the fact that we did because it was so, you know, worrying about money while you're playing a gig is not, is not very nice. Yeah. I can remember staying with Capdown on tour and they were living in public housing and they were, they were on the dole at the time because, you know, they were playing, yeah. playing so much. And and that's to say that, um, you know, Tim Tim and Boo both grew up um, in like a nice cul-de-sac at the end of a block in like upper middle class houses. Like, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, once you've decided to pick punk rock, you, uh, you know, maybe the parents say, OK, no more, no more money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll do it on your own. <laughs> First tour, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll pay for your petrol and, and hire you a car. Second tour, it's like, no, you got to get a real job. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, going back to that question of like, you know, why, why other bands <clears throat> split up? Ninety nine percent of the time, it'd be we've got to get a job. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, hats off to hats off to Liam in that respect because we we were able to run Sonic Boom 6 as a business for for a little bit where we didn't we didn't get paid but we were able to keep the lights on m- yeah, yeah yeah totally and that that that's that was really important because we we couldn't we couldn't have kept going otherwise yeah you got some good attention with City of Thieves and then as i understand it that led to a record deal uh with Extra Mile who were a bigger label than you were on uh, for your self-titled album in 2012. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. And then you you also had this uh, virus was sort of like the single that you had positioned maybe to sort of be the breakout hit. Yeah, yeah, that's fair to say. Um, yeah, I mean, we... We did we, we did City of Thieves and it, it, was, it, it was very much like... Um, you know, when I look at it now, you can look at it from a distance and you can see that... Um, Everything was going so fast that we we hit some really massive milestones. Like we played on the main stage of Reading and Leeds, but then everything kind of um, we trouble with City of Thieves. It's like I said before, it's a great album, but it's not the great. The songs aren't the greatest. Um, the songs are over long and they're not as simple as the ones on the first two albums. So we were there and we released the album and it got amazing reviews everywhere, like genuine, you know, all across the rock press. But then we didn't really have, and because we were doing everything on such a shoestring, like now I can see it, we should have done, like we did when we did the album, later album, and we released No Man, No Right with a video. It was kind of like, that's what we should have been doing, but it was just before the, the, the doing these sort of DIY videos was, was as, as easy as it is now. Um, I say DIY, but, you know, the small sort of video production companies. But we were all waiting. We were waiting for, um, for uh, 
for, for strange transformations. And we did have a radio plugger and Black Back to School got some play on radio and stuff. But it just, no one was having it because it's always happened with, the, with, with Sonic Boom 6, which is, it was too, uh, it was too rock for anything like outside of, you know, the, the more sort of dance or eclectic um, radio stations. But then we, you had um, the lockup, which was a radio um, one punk show and we get played on that. But then we needed to get played on like the evening session and all this different stuff. And we couldn't sit you because it was too, it was too hard. It was too heavy. And then we were going to bring out Strange Transformation, but we ran out of money before we could. And even now thinking back, even though that's a kind of a cool tune, it's got a cool gimmick, it would have been like winning the lottery if it would have got any play because it's where do you play it? There was no radio station that was going to play a strange horror-themed hip-hop tune by a punk band. It's just, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, and, and this is it. I work in music marketing now and I have done for, um, you know, the last 10 years and I can see what happened with us. It just fell between too many different posts, and it was just kind of. So what happened? We got we we, we did, I mean, I'm I'm not taking anything away from it. We were doing so well, but it kind of stalled. Um, ben left the band to go to America. So then we sort of regrouped, and um, we we the, the second and third album we'd released ourselves on our own label, Rebel Alliance, and that was a whole other thing because then we were putting out um, records by bands like Random Hand and The Skints and Mouthwash. But then that got far too much to try and juggle with being on tour in Europe with Real Big Fish. So it was like something had to give. So we kind of regrouped and went, all right, let's let's um, let's let someone else deal with the record side of it and the producing and uh, uh, not the producing, sorry, the marketing and the uh, the, uh, the video production, etc. Um, and James joined the band. He'd been in a band from Blackpool that we'd played with a few times and we it was all very serendipitous. He wanted to be in the band and we wanted to ask him. So it all went down really well and we wrote that record. And and we did not see that as a departure from what we did before because we always saw ourselves as a very eclectic band. And it was kind of like, okay, well, on this album, it's going to be a bit more obviously loop-based and uh, it's going to use more synths and um, more influence from uh, commercial drum and bass and dubstep. Uh, and we're going to mix our sort of punky lyrics in there, but we're going to change the way that the band comes across a little bit because it's going to be me and Layla, we're doing more dueling vocals. So we released that album in 2012, it was. And yeah, the lead track was Virus. And um, that got played on quite a lot of um, like TV, like some TV I think it was the video. The video really made a difference mm-hmm, to getting that, to getting it out there. The, the only person that ever really played it on daytime radio one was Hugh Stevens. Now I, I, I was to bless that guy because what an actual hardcore music fan he is. Because he's heard that and he's like, "I like that. I'm going to play it." That wasn't, you know, what I mean, it wasn't playlisted to him. It wasn't. I, I don't think we had we we had in house promotion at Extra Mile. That's fair, but we didn't have a dedicated radio plucker absolutely, you know, zeroing in and trying to get us. Um, so we did get some daytime radio one play, and you, you should have seen Twitter. You, you imagine. You're a band that's on the A-list on Radio 1. You're getting played every two hours or whatever. Because, like, literally on Twitter, it's just, who is this? This sounds mad. This is awful. This is brilliant. The guy from Pendulum tweeting us, oh, my God, this is amazing. Who's this girl? She's got a crazy voice. 
it's just like you see that what that level of exposure gets you. And we just, for one sweet day, we drunk from the chalice of all our dreams. We're on <laughs> daytime radio one. And, you know, all these punk fans are going, oh, you've sold out and this and that. But we're like, we're not bothered. We're on daytime radio one. Yeah, like we've been doing this for 10 years. Off your fuck. Like, you let us have our moment. <laughs> this is the thing. It's very easy. It's very easy to get use these interview situations to get bogged down on former gripes. And we've got, a, and it's, so, you know, sometimes we want to go there. And I do kind of feel that, oh, uh, you want to moan about people. But we had such a great time. But that's kind of how we, you know, you, you, you when, when you're doing something different, when you're doing something different, you have to be philosophical about mixing the the rough with the smooth, but I don't want it to sound like anyone ever that I'm making excuses and saying if everybody wasn't this and that, we would have made it big. I don't think I don't care. So much time has passed since that. Like all the amount of people that I have seen at our gigs, or that come come up to me, or I'll be at a gig and they'll come up to me and they'll be like, "I loved Rough Guide." And they all come back and, you know, they all come back and it it just seems like at the time it was so intense. Um, and, you know, we did get a lot of people like saying we'd sold out or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> we really haven't. I would. Yeah, I would say that the, the one thing that would defend ourselves is we we were surprised at the venom because we thought virus was was badass. Now I listen to it and I go, ah, it's quite harsh and kind of overproduced and there's not a lot of a live element to it. But we were buzzing on sort of commercial dance music at the time. It was exactly what we wanted to do. We didn't write that music record and go, um, this is going to make us famous or, or this is what everyone else is doing. But we were influenced by stuff that was happening at the time. And that, and we just brought that into what we were doing, and we all—that's what we always did. We play virus in the set now, and there isn't a single person that doesn't go mad. I think sometimes, yeah. sometimes time needs to pass yeah. for people not to be so absorbed in that. It's an aesthetic thing as well, though, because she's like you said about the video. It's very, <laughs> it's a, it definitely leveled yeah, up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The video seems like yeah, it's a very kind of. I don't want to say high concept, but yeah. Oh, it's amazing. You know what? I'm I'm so glad we have that video because whenever people are like, oh, yeah, like like people that haven't been to our gigs or, you know, they go, oh, oh, so uh, I hear you're in a band. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, and oh, I hate it when people say this, but they, but they say it. Would I have heard of you? And I'm like, um, probably not. Like we call Sonic Boom 6 and they go, no. I'm like, okay, well, I said you, I said you wouldn't have heard of us, but yeah. Uh, so you on um you're on YouTube and stuff. Yeah, actually we've got videos on YouTube. If you just put Sonic Boom Six in, you don't hear from them. And then the next day they're like, Oh my god, <laughs> that's virus video. Like you're a proper band. So I'm I will forever be grateful for that <laughs> video because that's the first one they watch and they go, Oh, she knows she's in a proper band. And it's had loads of views as well. So like, <laughs> Hats off to virus. If if that's the only purpose it serves in my life, I'm a happy woman. I can remember when that came out and just <laughs> the production level on that video is insane. Yeah. And you know what? If you were a Sonic Boom 6 fan and your favorite song is bigger than punk rock, mm. you probably would be a bit pissed off. <laughs> You'd probably be a bit like, not pissed off, but you know when like something's yours. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, no, because like, 
when you've seen someone said it actually about Billie Eilish. So I've got a mate, and she went to see Billie Eilish years ago in the UK at a small venue, and then Billie Eilish got huge, and she was like, "Oh, I liked it better when she was like when only I knew about oh, for sure. it." And and you know, it's just it's just a human thing that we we've all done at some point. I guess yeah, it's at the time it it was a bit painful but you know we're all one big happy boom family now so it's all good. yeah i mean there, there was there definitely was a conscious um step away from tying ourselves to the aesthetic of the punk scene probably because we weren't, we weren't touring as much as well so we weren't just wearing free clothes <laughs> <laughs> Well literally, well, literally, that was it. We cared a little bit more about our appearance, and we were just a bit, bit less disheveled and, and kind of had. We've always cared about our appearance, though. But Layla, it's so much harder to do in your own tour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was, it yeah, was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. just, a, it was just a different thing. But we did, we, it was a conscious uncoupling of, of us just going, okay, we're going to rely on that scene, which we did for the first two records. We started pushing away on City Fuse, but the first two records were written, especially the first one. But then, you know, I, I always remember, um, I always remember uh, Dan from Skindred saying the first time he ever um, seen us, he went on our MySpace. And um, in, under influences, it had it, it had like the, the rough guy background. It had a picture of us looking cool and graffiti and all a bit urban with the with graffiti, a bit naff, but but it but because it was because it was because it was done well, it, it did look cool. And then we had that grenade wings, and then under influences, I just had like pitch. I just put up pictures of like Donlets, Minor Threat, um, Cat Down, uh, Public Enemy, and it's just pictures. And the the Fugees uh, and the streets, right? And he said he looked at that, he pressed play, and he was like, "This is the fuck." I get this straight away. And I kind of look back on that and I go, "Yeah, I mean that that was cool. Like that that we we nailed that." Like, but in it, Matt, right? It's it's funny. You, yeah, but you get ugh, this is it. You give an example of Dan from Skindred, like Skindred, or you know quite progressive if you think about like what they do like metal and uh raga and the benji and then you get the scene that we were in and this is not to call out people in the punk scene even though it probably sounds like i'm doing and you, you the, the scene that we were in we were never fully accepted like and i i remember uh so, so Nick, Nick's old band, when they first saw us, literally looked at each other and went, "What the fuck is this?" Not, not in a, not necessarily in a negative way, but they didn't get it. Whereas Dan Pugsley is someone that was a little was part of that punk scene, but also listening to dubstep and you know all different kinds of music. So, so that that scene is that we were from we were never fully include and we were never fully no but we made our own we made our own from from from, two, from 2005 to like 2002 2009 2010 we, we we loved it we had our own we had our own spans that we were random hand and yeah, all that yeah we, we did all that. yeah yeah so we, like, did, we did at that point at that point what i'm saying is that was that aesthetic we nailed it it looked cool but then with that 2012 album we were like 
nah, we're, we're going to do something else. Do you know what I mean? We're not just going to keep doing... Uh, this is the thing. I love no effects, but I've only heard three no effects albums. I'm not into bands that do the same album again and again and again. And fair play, my favourite bands are like The Clash and Blur that do different albums every time. And sometimes the crap. But then you go back on it and you're looking at it in different. That's kind of what we were. The, yeah. I, I, I love the Smashing Pumpkins, but I love two albums because they make the same album again and again. Some people love that and that's fair, but that's not what Sonic Boom 6 ever mm-hmm. was. It was always going to be, we, we're going to do like an acoustic crap album. And, you know, I, I, I like that, the bands that have these weird albums. So we just went, we're not doing the same album again. What's the point? I don't get that. Like, you know, I don't, and I don't get fans that want that either. Do you know what I mean? Go and listen to the old tunes. Yeah, but it's probably like very fear driven, isn't it? It's probably like, oh, if we stray away too much, then you get the backlash. Some bands just have their formula and they like it and they do it well, but it's just that's just never was never part of our thing at all. Like, no, no, so, it wasn't. But I'm just thinking about the. The extra mile album, it was, it, it you know, didn't seem like a radical departure to us. It seemed like a completely, completely natural evolution to us. It never, it never does. It never, ever does. Like, I remember when we did the F-bomb and someone was like, oh, my God, this is like Rihanna pop. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, what are you, what are you on about? <laughs> I bet when Suicide Machines made that album, it was like completely different. They knew. I'm not, I'm not slagging it off one way or the other because I love Suicide Machines. But then you hear that and you go, okay, that's them going, all right, we do this. It's sort of a completely different band with the same name. But, you know, some bands do do that. Like, But that's not what we were doing with that at all. We weren't trying to get famous. We were going, we've got what our, what the blueprint of from the beginning and it is in 2012 and that's what it was in 2006. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, natural. It's the same spirit of the band, but just executed differently. Yeah, we weren't kids in the garage anymore. We are. We were. We were. Uh, we were in our twenties on laptops. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would even. I would even argue though that even from the beginning, the band never sounded like kids in a garage. Like very early on, there was tons of different elements being thrown in, lots of sampling, lots of very very slick pop sounding production. Even even with the heavier punk hardcore mixed in with with ska stuff and hip-hop yeah but that 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 first album was written uh except for monkey see monkey oh that's not even on the album um that but that that's that album was written in a room do you know what i mean for people it's me ben layla and, and neil and and a little bit of previous guitarist dave um we actually wrote those songs and then it wasn't until uh, especially City of Thieves was where Ben was then heavily demoing um, and we weren't writing in rooms as right. much. Um, but you can hear on on Sonic Room 6, that one on Extra Mile, none of that was ever played live in rooms. Mm-hmm. It was always, that was developed with us sat around recording as we were writing. That was fully, you know, that fully flipped on its head. And like F bomb was written on Garage Band, so it's just like <laughs> it had got it went completely the other way. So it's just, it's just funny. I mean, that's as much as as much as the story of us as human beings. That's the story of music tech uh, and and production becoming more sure. just so much more ac- a- accessible for people. And um, you know, if we would have been the, the we we still had the where we've all to kind of write quite big poppy hooks and 
go back and do the post-production to add samples and get everything quant. You know what I mean? We were probably playing to a click, uh, even on even on rough guides for some of it. Some of it we wouldn't have been, but it's like, yeah, we were kind of all, all, all we were also interested in recording and that. So, but, it, the, but there was a much more organicness, which which you can, it's for good and bad. Some of the tunes have these absolutely meandering instrumental sections where we were just, well, must have been drunk or stoned that night to us to leave that in. And it goes on for like two minutes. There was a saxophone noodling over it, but you know, that was, that was the style of the time. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I just wanted to t- talk really quickly. I mean, since we were going down the list, I just wanted to bring up the F-Bomb album. I, it's the, in my opinion, it's the most ska release. Yeah. How was that received in 2016? Because I feel like had it come out like three years later, like it would have gotten a really good reception. How was it received in 2016 though? Like a fart in church. Layla, how was it received? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, you know what? It our, our our fans loved it, like especially like No Man No Right, like you know that that song kind of became a lot of people's favorite new Sonic Boom song, Sonic Boom Six song, and that and that was really really nice. But you know, it's just like it it it's it's hard to say. Yeah, it wasn't. It was all. It took ages to come out, mm. and you know what? It took ages to come out. It was all a bit stressful. Um, loved personally, I loved record. That was like my favorite album to record because yeah, we, for the first time, it was we actually spent time on the vocals, and it wasn't like ah, oh, we've got three days left. We've got to get all the vocals done. It was just, and the producer we had, Dan Weller. He was a real vocal kind of guy as well. So he like set it up so that me and Barney were in the same booth and we got to, it was just a lot of fun and a lot of this, a lot of the stress was taken out of it. And, you know, it's, it's my favorite uh, songs to perform. I like my voice on it. I, I like my voice on it. Whereas the other albums, I'm a bit like, I'm not that keen on it. I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, which I guess is like the beauty in it as well. Um, and so for me, yeah, I don't think it it probably wasn't received. When I, see, when I say a fart in church, I, I, that's probably, even though it's a funny way of saying it, that's not probably not the right thing because it, it wasn't received neg- negatively. It was just barely received at all. It yeah. took too long to come out and the, the promotion around it was just sort of online videos. As you say, the big, the this idea of this, new wave of scar in the US. It's like the interrupters weren't doing what they've done since and kickstarted a load of new interest in the scene. The sort of online scar Twitter and all that wasn't there. It was just burgeoning. Mm-hmm. Um 
the, 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 the concept of it at the heart of it, the feminism thing was ironically, that was, to me, like the feminism thing was a massive issue at the time. But then it's almost like bloody Bitcoin. It just went up and up and up. And then there was the Me Too thing. And it's kind of like we, we missed that by like a year and a half or something. And I know that sounds so cynical to speak of it in those terms, but it is what it is. That I, the, the, I, a lot of the statements that we're saying in the lyrics, like on, on No Man No Right, it's, it's a Me Too song. It's like, and that is, it, it, it was in the air, but it just hadn't galvanized into something that people could deny in a, pithy um hashtag and um it it yeah it came out it wasn't it there wasn't much of a scar a, a scar punk scene left in the uk sure. really what what's happened in the uk is uh, a lot of the more sort of there's younger bands playing a more sort of traditional rough and tumble squat punk sound that's 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 quite good because there's you know, it's kind of the scar thing what, what kind of left us a little bit out of what was happening in the UK rock mags, for instance. We just didn't get anything. We didn't get anything in Kerrang. We didn't get anything. Actually, we did. We've got a scathing review in Kerrang. It is, <laughs> it is what it is. And, and uh, you know what I mean? It's, it is disheartening because you, because um, I, I, I mean, it, it's interesting. It's a scar podcast. So there's a tune on there where we, we um, were called From the Fire to the Frying Pan. And it's kind of a bit of a scar tune. And and, and um, we did a video about somebody getting rag- radicalized to the far right through social media. And we did like a video where it's a kid on Facebook and he gradually sort of, and it was based on a kid that we met at our gigs who was like a massive fan. And then he started getting into this far right hoopla that, you know, a lot of people have, and they, that's, again, that's just got more and worse and worse, hasn't it? You know, with the tiki torches and all that, but it was, it was on, it was in the sort of heyday of that, that whole incel thing and that whole blaming everybody else for, for, for everything that's gone wrong in people's lives. So this, uh, this kid over the space of like three years, he's coming to our gigs and he's coming backstage and he's like telling us like, right, you know, recommending that we go on like info wars and stuff with a, with a straight face and i'm like mate and you listen to our mm-hmm. lyrics so we so we, re- we, re- we wrote this song about him and i was just a normal kid and he's got radicalized by this and then we put the video up on air on youtube like as you do and um it must have ended up on one of these uh forums uh like it's not 4chan but it's one like that uh and then all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of like anti-globalization, far right, anti-Semitic, Muslim hating uh people came on and bombed it with comments. Do you know like they do on Rotten Tomatoes if something gets has got like a a, a, a Lead person that's not white and is female. Do you know, if, if someone, if you've got, do do you know James Do new James Bond's black? You'll get hundreds and hundreds of people that come on that, that do a concerted like bomb, a review bomb of it. So then that happened on that video, and I couldn't even read it. I was like sick and like right big wet lettuce about it, but like it was horrible, and we didn't really have strong enough. We couldn't even galvanize our fan base to kind of go and defend us. And it was a bit like at that point, I'm out. Do you know what I mean? That broke broke my heart, really. And it was kind of like, all right, you know, 
it, it's a real shame at exactly what the video is about. You're going on there and 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 saying, and they were saying horrible things about Layla as well, yes. uh, obviously because you know not 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 being white. So it was um, that was very that was horrible. Again, and we don't want to get into negative, but that that was kind of like that's that. Unfortunately, that's what happened with that album. And also, I think we'd we'd started to take our foot off the gas as well you know because it's only so long you can it's only so long from the age of 17 or whatever that you can keep doing it to the extent and the passion that we were given it and you know by then we'd moved to London and and it was a little bit you know what it was okay to stop pinning our whole life on the band being able to pay our rent or give us a living that you know being able to just go out and and you know to to, like do normal stuff like having that have a have a have a rent a nice place in London and um go out for a meal and be able to afford nice things you know it gets all of us at some point. Yeah. Um, and by then, it's like the amount of, well, more for Barney, actually, the amount of energy and time that goes into keeping this going as a business, it just, it, 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 it just become, it just naturally become okay we're doing something else now and that's okay because we're not splitting up and now it's 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 nice because before my whole identity was tied up in being in a band mm-hmm. it's the only thing it's the only conversations i'd have with people you know and it it's a scary thing especially i, I remember like every time an album would come out i'd be like there'd be so much fear that what if this is the last album? What am I going to do? Like, you know, and so much fear and stuff behind it. And like, none of it, it takes the enjoyment out of it. And the F-bomb was really fun, but it came out and 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 that was it. And we did, the, you know, the No Man No Right video was really fun, but I think we were just a bit done in. Yeah. And that's, you know what? That's okay. That doesn't mean that, we hate the band or we regret doing anything. We're human beings that have done it since we were teenagers. You know, our relationships were built around it. My, 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 I met my husband who was in a band, then was in our band. And you yeah, know, Le- Layla, can you tell that story really quick? Oh God, it's so embarrassing. Please. Or you don't have to, if you don't want to, but I love it. No, no, no. Everybody knows the story. So, um, <clears throat> So I met Nick. So I met Nick Horn in two thousand and four when we played with Howard's Alias, and I was just like, "Oh my god, he is just." I just fell in love. I, I was just like, "He's so cool," and he was one of those as well. He was really rude. Like you say hello to him, and he just walked past you, and I was like fucking asshole how dare he ignore me so that was it that was a challenge for me and um we had an agent we had a we had a so in two the end of 2004 beginning of 2005 
um oh it's yeah it's actually barney who introduced me to howard's alias because he because a band called dessa which adam knows very well that's that's my old band <laughs> oh, oh my god are you actually adam from dessa yeah yeah <gasps> that's why i love this story oh my god oh you know the story yeah so barney was like you've got to come and see this band called and i was kind of splitting up with my boyfriend at the time it, was, it wasn't wasn't very nice um Barney was like, you've got to come and see Dessa because they're drummer. You are, you will love their drummer. <laughs> like he is, he is one for you. And so I went to see Dessa and like, don't get me wrong. The drummer was really hot, but I was just all about Mick Horn. And I was just like, oh my God, this guy. And it was just when the internet had come out. So I was like Googling like Howard's alias and listening to Howard's alias all the time, like listening for his vocal and his trombone part. Uh, it's safe to say I was I'd become a bit obsessed, and so Ian Armstrong used to book our band and Howard's Alias, and um, I I just said to him I said look and Ian I'm never going to ask you for any favors ever again. Get us on the tour with Howard's Alias, and I am going to get Mick Horn. Like I'm going to make him <laughs> fall in love with me. That's it. You know, he's never going to look at another girl again. Like, it's all going to work <laughs> out amazingly. So we did this tour. And, you know, it was it was amazing. Me and Nick got together after about the third day. And, you know, he's, he's a quiet guy. But he's, he's a one-off. He's very unique, as you know, Adam. Uh, and then it was like the second to last night of this tour. And I was like, you know, done got him all good and uh it was nottingham and he came up to me and he went i'm really sorry i've got something to tell you like you know i um i got off with this girl last night and i was just like what (laughs) (laughs) and so we were on the rocks by the end of the tour and then after the tour we decided to keep seeing each other and I would go to Southampton and I I lived in Manchester. So we had this long distance relationship. We'd see each other every six weeks and he was in Howard's Alias. So he'd be setting off on tour when I was getting back on, you know, getting back off tour. And then I think we were together for about three months and he he kept introducing me as his friend, Mm. like to people. And I was just like, oh, you know what? I can't. It was so stressful. I was like, because I've just split up with my boyfriend and I was just like, I can't be doing this. And I, I was at my uncle's house and there was this guy called Warren and he was like, right, um, you know, can I can I sleep in your bed tonight or shall I sleep downstairs? And I was like, you know what, Warren, give me one minute. I rang Nick and I was like, right, what are you saying? Am I your girlfriend or am I not? Because if I'm not, let's just call it a day. We never need to see each other again. And, you know, at least I know what's going on. And he said to me, it's okay you're my girlfriend. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. 16 years later. Um, lucky Warren. Yeah, lucky. You remember Warren. Do you not remember Warren that came to Glastonbury? Yeah, he was, yeah, he was mad. <laughs> he was mad. Oh, he was mad, yeah. Um, you all loved him. You know, it's... I'm just I'm just really lucky. He's... he's you know Adam like, and Barney. He's... He's amazing. He's a one-off. He He's definitely a one-off. He's definitely a one-off. <laughs> yeah. And it's just uh, yeah, all the all these years later and 
he's just so I had I had to have the conversation with him when we got back from Warp Tour and I was like, Nick, I I kinda gotta gotta like, you know, I've got to do a Barney and like try and find a job that I love and try and find try and find something to do that isn't isn't this anymore. And you know, and Nick was born he's a he's born to tour. Like some people are not born to, I am not born to tour. Like I used to drink too much, take too many drugs, uh, was always like just you know, I, I enjoyed it but but I also didn't enjoy it. Whereas Nick, he just he loves it. And even when we had that conversation, he was so supportive. And he was like, you know, because I'd be like, um, excuse me, you're doing the band because I want to do the band. And he wasn't like that at all. He was like, whatever makes you happy, that's what you do. Oh, so and good. I don't, you know, I know. And I don't think many people, because that, that was him kind of saying, okay, like, if that's what you want to do, I'll put that side of it with Sonic Boom 6 on hold too. Not that it's been on hold, but you know what it's like. We we have great intentions of touring and, you know, we used to do 200 gigs mm-hmm. a year and now we probably do two. two. <laughs> yeah, actually two because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah, but he was hard work. He was definitely very, very hard to get. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad. I'm glad that we 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 were meant we were meant to be together. I definitely think so. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you normally download podcasts. If you haven't already. Grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's at In Defense of Ska. You can also sign up for my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get the podcast sent directly to your inbox every Wednesday. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week so you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has a great band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. 
These are GA plus and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.